Thanks for listening to the Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Medical School. He may not have realized it at the time, but Ed Boudreaux's professional calling was defined when he was a graduate student studying to be a psychologist. As he recently recalled in a Washington Post article reported by William Wan, a woman who had come in for routine diabetes care was, in fact, suicidal. Quote, she was so suicidal, Boudreaux said, I had to walk her from our clinic to the emergency department just to make sure nothing would happen in between. That strikes me as an alarming encounter um, that is probably routine for many caregivers, and I'm very happy today to welcome Dr. Ed Boudreaux to Voices of UMass Med. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for joining us. So um, you're going to talk about you know, some life-saving, some life-changing research into suicide prevention that you have underway, um, but I want to start with that encounter that was so dramatically captured in that Washington Post article recently. Um, I imagine that was the first of many patient encounters like that for you. Sure. Um, I think when people think about pa patients who are uh, suicidal or who have suicide risk, they're typically going to think of um, a, a person who's um, presenting with a psychiatric disorder or presenting with some sort of frank evidence that they're suicidal. Maybe they've been thinking about killing themselves and they're asking for help for that. But um, when we look in medical patient populations, we realize that there's a, this enormous wellspring of suicidal patients that don't come to the attention of the clinicians because they simply aren't asking the questions. Um, so this patient that is a good example who was presenting for a medical problem um, and was secretly suicidal and had the clinician not detected that and asked the right questions, we never would have even known that she was suicidal. And she may have actually uh, killed herself uh, and with, with no one in the medical setting knowing that she was that suicidal. And that really is the crux of the research that we're going to talk about in this conversation. I, I want to just start with a little bit of context. Um, data from the National Institutes of Mental Health shows that suicide is a leading cause of all deaths in America, the second most common manner of death for young people ages 10 to 34. That will surprise a lot of people, I think, um, but what are your thoughts about why and why the numbers are rising? Well, I think it's just like any complicated um, cause of mor mortality. There's a, there are probably a, a bunch of different factors that are, that are leading to the increase in suicide rates. Um, one of the more obvious is that there, especially in younger people, is an, a concomitant rise in depression and anxiety. So we just see this general, um, this general trend of, of increasing depression and anxiety, which of course is associated with, with suicide risk. You know, many, perhaps even most patients who die by suicide um, are struggling with some kind of psychiatric disorder, a mental health problem, um, even if it's not been diagnosed. Uh, so I think that when you look at the contributors to, to suicide, that has to play a, a factor in it. Other people have observed that the modern, high-paced, stressful society we live in might be contributing to, um, to, to this because you really can't get away from uh, the stress. You know, we carry our stress with us in our pockets uh, in the form of our phones. Our social media is, uh, has a constant uh, barrage of, of messages about um, whether we're good enough or not and, and comparing ourselves to, to others. Um, we see 
uh, images of suicide and we know about suicide uh, from uh, celebrities and from, from other personalities because it's constantly in, put in front of us. And if you think about in the past, if a person died by suicide before social media and before the ubiquity of, of um, um, other media platforms like YouTube and kind of instant news, you might have heard about it, but then it would kind of peter out. Well, right now, if someone dies by suicide, you may hear about it you know, a dozen times from these different channels. And some of those um, different channels are actually pretty explicit. So um, we know the, the concept of suicide contagion is real. So we've, we've studied this in the past, and we know that when a community experiences a suicide, that it increases the probability that people in that community um, also uh, die by suicide. And if you think about now how we have a worldwide or a broader community, it's kind of like that same idea. We're now connected to these suicide experiences from throughout the country or even the world. Right. It makes it feel more prevalent, even whether it is or isn't. It's like you say, it's in your face every day. Right. And it's it might kind of act to normalize the, um, the, the topic so that we become um, kind of uh, immune to it. So stark. It's, mm. it's so, it, obviously, it's so serious and mm. it's so much to think about. And the conditions that you describe in terms of social media and a general increase in depression and anxiety, those aren't likely to change. So how do you suggest we deal with some of that onslaught? I'm asking as a parent and as a per professional, and like as just a human, how do we, how do we adapt? I think there's multiple layers um, to consider. From a societal level, I think it's important for us to recognize these trends and to figure out and to mobilize uh, efforts, including policy changes, in order to deal with this. So, for example, if you look deep into the reasons why people have escalating mental health issues, it's a really complex formulation, but at least part of it relates to a shortage of mental health professionals and uh, this uh, lack of parity in the way mental health and medical health are treated. So if you have low access to mental health professionals who can help with identifying and managing suicide risk, then uh, that's, that's gonna, gonna automatically lead to more people who have uncontrolled or poorly controlled mental health issues that are associated with suicide. So I think from a policy and a, and a, and a, a societal level, um, improving our access to high-quality mental health care, I think, is, is important, not just for suicide risk, but for other uh, aspects of mental health. From an individual level, if you're thinking about what you might be able to do with people you know, um, there's a, 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 a general think, thought in the suicide prevention world that we should make sure that we're not afraid to ask the question. So you know, when we think about this, it's an uncomfortable topic for us. There's a lot of stigma associated with it. There's a lot of resistance. And it, it may be that we have a fear or an, an inkling that a person might be thinking about it, but there's that barrier to asking the question that we just can't get over. So let's talk about that, because that's sure. really why we invited you here to have this conversation today. I want to talk about your research um, that has focused on these big questions in suicide prevention, like who is at risk and how can we tell who is at risk and, and how can we help. So through your investigations over the years, you've built evidence, really strong, convincing evidence, I think, that asking just a couple simple questions, having a 
physician or a clinician ask that in the doctor-patient relationship setting can make a world of difference. So tell us about that and, and, and what you found. Yeah, well, I think many clinicians in the past have thought that if a person is suicidal and they want to kill themselves, that they're not going to be forthright, they're not going to be frank. So why even ask the questions? Because people are not going to be honest with you. And that's been a barrier to clinicians asking the question because they feel like they're just wasting their time. But what we've found is actually asking some pretty direct questions to patients will reveal a, a, a large proportion of patients who were previously not identified as having suicide risk. Now it is true that there are people who could be lying or, or who could be minimizing their symptoms and not being forthright. So it's hard to quantify what that number is. Do you find that that um, belief tends to bear itself out? Like do people tend to hide it or is it not bringing it up? There, well, it's, it's, it's at least both. Yeah. <laughs> now the proportion yes, uh, of that of is difficult to quantify. Sure. But we know that if you simply ask in the emergency department setting, for example, if you ask all adult patients who are presenting, so not just the psychiatric patients, but the patients who are presenting to, for a medical problem like diabetes or, or other medical problems, um, that approximately 3% of those patients, those medical patients, so depending upon the studies, anywhere from 1.5% to 3.5%, if you ask them directly if they have been having thoughts of killing themselves over the past two weeks, they will tell you yes. And those are patients who, not, who ordinarily wouldn't have been identified. Clearly not everyone is minimizing or trying to hide it. Now of those people who say no, is there a proportion of those people who are saying no but then go out and try to hurt themselves? There, there probably is, it's, but there's no studies on, on that. Is the question being asked of every patient? So in our emergency departments at UMass, it's being asked of every patient who's 12 years old and older. 12 and up, okay. um, So other emergency departments don't do universal screening, so it's really a policy that the individual health system can, can set. We've set as our goal to screen everyone who comes in through the emergency department. Mm -hmm. And at this point, our latest uh, data show that we um, answer the question in the electronic health record, so that's how we can document and track this because it's it's, um, there are specific questions that are programmed into um, our electronic health record. And so we, we document about 90% of the patients um, who come through the ED um, have a screening. And so uh, with your team, if somebody does say yes, what happens next? So there's usually some follow-up questions. So you can think of it in terms of phases. The first stage of these questions, number one, they have to be really quick because as you know, we don't want to clog up the workflow. So the first stage, what we might call primary screening, uh, is only three questions and it happens very quickly at the uh, initial point of care, usually the triage or the initial nursing assessment. It's usually nurses who are asking these questions when we're doing a screening. Um, and then if, and those questions are basically designed to determine is there a signal? And is there something we need to follow up on or can we simply put it aside and not have to worry about it for the rest of the visit? Most people, you screen, screen negative, but those who screen positive on the first get a series of other additional questions that help to stratify that risk because it's not an all or none kind of thing. There are people who might be at mild risk, moderate or high risk, and you want to treat those people differently. And there's a care pathway for each of those strata. So when you're in the mild risk group, there are a certain set of key activities or actions that we're supposed to take, and that 
uh, is true for all the other risks. With, of course, the highest risk group being the, the care pathway that's the most intensive. Um, that's associated with things like making sure that the person is always under observation so that they don't while they're in the emergency department to make sure that they're um, kept safe during their stay. Um, and it usually involves you know, what you would imagine, a, a mental health evaluation to try to further dig deeper into understanding the person's risk. I do want to say that the National Institutes of Mental Health and suicide prevention groups support more widespread implementation of the screenings like the one that you've developed. But there is a lot of pushback, and, and I want to ask you about that. And, and you even say some of that's legitimate, some of the sure. pushback. Yeah, I think there's pushback in on multiple layers. First off, the individual clinicians are often uncomfortable asking patients these questions. The patients are not usually coming in for this, so asking a question about this simply to detect if there's hidden risk doesn't really fit well with many um, clinicians' idea of what should happen in the emergency department, and I totally understand that because, you know, when a person's coming in for a particular problem, they really want care for that problem, and they want to focus on that problem. So asking or assessing or screening for things that are um, not squarely within that person's chief complaint can seem a little odd for the clinician. Sometimes it can seem a little odd for the patient as well. So I'm sympathetic to that, and I think the main reason why we try to, to justify the importance is because this is a life-threatening condition. We do a lot of other screening um, that has nothing to do with the person's presenting complaint. As an example, every patient who comes through gets all of their vitals. Most of the time, those vitals have nothing to do and don't change treatment, but we administer the vitals anyway. In fact, we're supposed to do vital, vitals several times during the ED visit, even if their vitals are normal. Um, when they first come in. We do that activity um, not because we, th we think that that information is going to be very useful most of the time, but some of the time it is very useful. Um, and that's the, same, uh, that's the same principle behind this. And so we usually try to point that out, that we do um, screening activity that even though it's uncomfortable and may take time, is important to save people's lives. Um, and then the, the other source of resistance uh, is what we call Pandora's box. So the idea being, once I know that this person is suicide risk, what do I do with them? And this also has to do with the, the, um, the, the lack of behavioral health providers. Um, I think that if most emergency departments had ready, quick access to a behavioral health specialist, like even a, a master's level social worker or a counselor who could do the evaluation, there would be far less um, resistance to screening, but they don't. And many EDs have nothing. They literally have no mental health professionals. And to your earlier point about the shortage of mental health providers, that you know, if, if our system as it is today can't handle the patient load, how are we going to respond to twice as many patients exactly. in need? That you just conceptualized the main argument, is we're struggling now with the existing burden, primarily driven by people who are presenting with frank um, signs of suicide risk. They tried to kill themselves. Someone has said that they tried to kill themselves. They're there with serious depression. Um, so, so if our system is already overwhelmed with the existing known uh, clinical population, once we start to screen and we identify more people, how are we going to handle that? So that's the that's the um, the conundrum that we face. And and I think that you know that that's a legitimate. Um, observation that this is going to be uh, difficult to solve. But on the other hand, it seems like by saying that we're simply sticking our head in the sand and saying 
you know, well, we can't help this patient, so I'm not even going to ask. Who cares if they actually go out and kill themselves after this visit? Right. So it, it, there's and that it duality. And it alludes to the policy piece that you mentioned earlier. So, I mean, if you could imagine that, you know, creating incentives for people to go into mental health care professions would be a policy question that could be tackled pretty easily. Right. Or, you know, maybe the insurance parity question, you know, treating mental health. You really can't. I'm probably preaching to the choir, but I mean, physical ailments and mental ailments, right? They're not se separable. That's right. Exactly. They're separable in, in a, a theoretical sense, but when you deal with, with patients, when you're treating patients, um, whether you're treating them because you're a medical doctor or whether you're treating them because you're a mental health professional, it doesn't take very long to recognize that this duality between medical and mental health is really... Um, is only a theoretical one. It's the combination in many of these cases of the medical problem and the, the psychiatric problem that are culminating in this desire to escape pain, to escape suffering. Mm. Um, and that's really what's that's driving the, the suicide tissue. risk, yeah. is their desire to escape their suffering. Right. I do want to ask you about the thought process behind conducting this screening in an emergency department setting versus at my annual primary care mm -hmm. visit. So it should be done both places. In primary care settings, you should do is make sure that you're not only screening for depression and looking at just the depression score on your screener, but you're also paying attention to the critical item on suicide risk. And if we do that, then we're much more likely to capture people um, through that screening. So um, we can't lose sight of some of the evidence that has come from your research. And correct me if, I've, if I don't have this right, but combining that screening in the emergency department and then for the folks who at, are at higher risk, with combining that with a brief follow-up counseling, even something over the phone, you found reduced suicide attempts in the following year by a third. That's right. Yep, by 25 to, to 30 percent, um, fewer people had a suicide attempt in, the, in, that, in that patient group that received the counseling after the ED visit. Um, compared to people who just received the standard care in the emergency department. And, um, you know, that, that, that post-ED counseling, post-emergency department counseling effect has been observed in other studies as well. So this is a replicable finding. Um, it's come to the, be called caring contacts in the suicide prevention literature, so um, extending and reaching out for a caring contact. And it, what's fascinating about that is it's not just outreach by telephone, but there's some uh, convincing data that simply a, uh, a caring contact letter really? can have a suicide prevention impact some as well. Some form of connection. Some form of connection. So it kind of comes back to the idea of, of connection and of, of feeling like someone out there cares about you and that you're connected with them. Even if it's the relatively distant kind of connection you have with a healthcare provider, um, seems to have um, an impact on people. So these, these care and contact uh, interventions have really been where a lot of the attention is focused because they're simple. And we've done economic analysis. Our own team and others have shown that they're very cost effective. When you look at the amount of money it takes to deliver this intervention and the amount of lives it saves is way more cost effective than many of the medical interventions that are currently in standard practice. Um, so it's it's... It, it makes sense to do them. What do you see happening next? What we have found is that the, the research behind the universal screening has convinced so, uh, some emergency departments to be able to do the universal screening, and they found that it's actually 
easier to comply with standards like the Joint Commission to do it universally than to allow the clinician to make a judgment. Because it's kind of difficult to know what the patient uh, is presenting with, whether it's a primary behavioral health complaint. So the classic example is a patient who comes in with, you know, with a, uh, a, a liver, liver failure problem. Um, and they're treating the liver failure and the resulting um, problems from the liver failure, but the liver failure is due to alcoholism. The person is drinking, and alcoholism, of course, uh, um, alcohol use disorder, is a pretty important risk factor for suicide risk. So it's hard to get the clinicians to tease that apart. So some hospitals find that even though it ends up being effort to do the universal screening, you're safe that way. You but by know making you're it universal, too, it also becomes a habit. That's it becomes right. something that can't be forgotten as easily. That's right. Okay, I think it's important that we share a resource that might be valuable to some people listening. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is a free and confidential hotline that is available to anyone, anywhere, 24 hours a day. That number to call is 800-273-TALK, 800-273-8255. You can also text a counselor at 741-741, and there's a website, suicidepreventionlifeline.org. We're talking with Dr. Ed Boudreaux, a researcher and professor of emergency medicine at UMass Medical School. So while your research into suicide prevention has captured the attention of many, you also have other research projects underway. One in particular that I'd like to ask you about is a new grant funded to help in the opioid crisis, um, helping people with substance use disorder on their path to recovery. So tell us what that's about. Sure. So um, we have worked with a, a company, a small business, to um, to develop an app, a mobile application, that helps the individual who is suffering from opioid use disorder to better manage and to improve their compliance with outpatient medication-assisted treatment. So one of the most important uh, treatment options for people with opioid use disorder is, is something called medication-assisted treatment. Um, and keeping people adherent to that outpatient treatment is really important. The more adherent the person is, uh, in treatment, the more likely they are to remain abstinent. The longer they are to remain abstinent, the more likely they are to have uh, to be in recovery um, for uh, long term. And the fewer uh, adverse impact of opioid use disorder, the, the less, less likely that happens. So, so keeping them engaged in treatment is really important. And so this company that we've been working with has developed this app um, that helps the patient do that. And it also helps the clinician to be able to monitor the patient's progress. So it has both the clinician and patient-facing um, components. And what we're doing right now is uh, superimposing an important evidence-based treatment on this mobile application called contingency management. So the word is, you know, the name is kind of uh, a bit jargonistic, but essentially what it boils down to is when you reward a person for doing behaviors that are healthy, they're more likely to do it. Mm. So you can see this, you positive know, reinforcement. positive reinforcement. Yeah. So another word for that is called operant conditioning. So when a person does a behavior that is consistent with a healthy outcome like abstinence, then you give them a reward for that. And, and that's delivered through the app. That's delivered through the app. Okay. So in this case, with opioid use disorder and MAT, um, they're able to get an opportunity to win prizes. These are, are gifts, uh, gift cards to uh, different vendors like Amazon or Dunkin' Donuts or Walmart. They get opportunities to earn those prizes each time they have a, po uh, a negative screen, 
So when their urine tox screen comes back negative for opioids, and every time they actually attend their outpatient MAT appointment. And what we're also adding is a, a, a bridging kind of feature where we can get people engaged in this app from the emergency department or the inpatient unit. So uh, with the idea that they get started with the app in the acute care setting, like the ED, and then they can continue with the app once they engage in outpatient care. And we reward them for showing up to their first appointment through this, this rewards program. And is program. this still being tested or is this available for people to actually use? We're actually in the development stage right Developing now. It. So the okay. ORS app itself, without the contingency management, is available um, for use now. Um, but the ORS app with this reward-based system is still being developed. I see. And so um, is there consensus in the healthcare community about the value of medically-assisted yes. MAT? There yeah, is. There's, yeah. There's it, no in question. the healthcare community, um, specifically in the substance abuse treatment community, there's, there's no question that this is, is um, a key component. It's probably not going to be um, the uh, a cure-all, uh, but it's definitely a key component. Best of luck as your research continues. Great, thank you. So much that we could be talking about. We could stay here all day. Ed Boudreaux, PhD, is a researcher and professor of emergency medicine at UMass Medical School. Thank you so much for making the time to talk about your important research. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Keep up to date with everything happening at UMass Medical School by following us on Facebook at UMass Med, on Twitter at UMass Medical, and on LinkedIn at University of Massachusetts Medical School.